You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. In some of the fundamental things, we'll go back to our very initial studies in this series, and this may have been where we actually probably should have started in this entire series we picked up some, some time ago. Because um, as we well know in the scriptures, and we referenced um, Mark chapter 4, as well as Matthew chapter 13, that doctrine is the basis for understanding all parables. Christ taught doctrine in parables. And we've learned, hopefully, through this uh, establishment in the series of studies that that really this mode of thinking solidifies doctrine. Because when you work it in its pattern as determined by Yahweh himself, and he's recorded it after that manner, in parables that some would see and some would not see, and of course we know the same is for Bible prophecy, and why it's given in symbolism, not as though it is in anything in any man, Daniel and Joseph both said, it's not in me, but God reveals it, so that no flesh is exalted, but that some people understand symbolic language and some people do not. And so regarding the allegory, and we'll get to Galatians chapter 4 in just a moment, its corresponding context. We'll requote what we did in our initial series from Elvis Israel and Brother Thomas. And by the way, this section of Abraham's life is uh, covered quite a bit in Elvis Israel by Brother Thomas where he says to allegorize is to represent truth by comparison. Thus, Christ taught them many things by parables and spake unto them in his doctrine. Without a parable, spake he not unto them. For certain features of the kingdom of God to be illustrated parabolically, and I believe all the parables are that way, at issue is the kingdom of God, is to speak or act allegorically. It is a mode of instruction, and this is what I believe is of the utmost importance, brothers and sisters. It is a mode of instruction that is more calculated to keep up the attention and to impress upon the mind permanently. Pause for just a moment. We can remember with much greater ease the details that Brother Terry just read for us because they're given to us in exact historic form, which have their exact doctrinal corresponding events. We can remember them more than, as Brother Thomas says, than a set discourse. They're made to impress upon our minds more than just a list of statements of faith, so to speak, or a formal disquisition. Those are important. But the scriptures are constructed after this ingenious plan, says Brother Thomas, by which they are made so much more interesting, and they are, and capable of containing so much more matter than any other book on the same subject and of the same size. They are a study of themselves, and no rules of interpretation or logic are of any value to the understanding of the things which they reveal. And you will know, in Elpis Israel, Brother Thomas says, The issue is the understanding of the things of the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ. When once these things are understood, the things that the allegories of the parables resemble immediately appear. So no standard fleshly rules of interpretation or logic are going to do us any good. It's doctrine that is at the root of parables or allegories. So with that in mind, here is where the Apostle Paul, of course, by inspiration takes up and says, tell me, ye that be under the law, and he's referencing what we just read in Genesis 21. Do you not hear the law? It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. And all over your margin, it will refer you back to Genesis 21. But he who was of the bond woman was born after the flesh. That's Ishmael. He that was of the free woman was born of promise. That is Isaac. 
which things are an allegory. These were literal events, but they were also allegorical at the same time. Because he says these are two covenants. They were actual historical events, but they were also two particular covenants. These are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, the other which gendereth bondage, I'm sorry, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is from above, that's Sarah and Isaac, is the mother of us all. That's the Jerusalem, he says, for it is written, Rejoice thou, barren, that bearest not. These children are produced after a different pattern. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath a husband. And look what he says. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh, Ishmael, they that are born after the flesh, persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out this bondwoman that we just read and her son, for the son, son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So there is no inventing, no creative thinking, no rules of logic or rules of interpretation needed that are outside the Bible to figure out what this section is speaking of in Scripture. We're told by inspiration in Galatians chapter 4, the apostle, what it is set to represent. Yes, it is history but it has prophetic meaning to the two covenants. And it says that in the context. And Brother Thomas in Elpis Israel <clears throat> says that this fragment of Abraham's history has a signification beyond what appears on the face of it. The apostle inform us, informs us that the incidents are allegorical. The two women and their characteristics represent two covenants, the two sons of Abraham, the two seeds are classes of people. So that Hagar is the law of bondage, Israel that they received in Sinai, Moses, Ishmael, the seed of Abraham after the flesh, brought up out of Egypt, the Jews under the law. Sarah is the Abrahamic covenant married before Hagar was given, who represents Isaac, the seed of Abraham after the spirit or the seed of the spirit. Okay, so let's just move in that context, which we have represented for us. Elpis Israel, page 252. Jerusalem is the subject of these covenants. Of course, we're told that in Galatians 4, but in different periods of history. The Hebrew commonwealth under Sinai and the constitution there, the Mosaic, was represented by Hagar, the bondwoman, because the covenant from Sinai gendered to bondage. But God did not intend the Hebrew commonwealth to exist perpetually under the Sinaitic constitution. Israel was not always to be in bondage to the law of Moses. A great revolution was predetermined of God. Remember, the promise that Abraham would bring forth the seed was long before Hagar came on the scene. Should result in an abolition of the Arabian covenant, that in Sinai, and the dispersion of Israel among the nations. This is allegorically styled the casting out of the bondwoman with her husband. So <clears throat> we know that the Abrahamic covenant, and we know there are really four breakdowns of this, but two primary to the subject before us. The Abrahamic covenant pertains regarding his seed of two primary things, that he will make of thee a great nation, and also that in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. The first, the making of the great nation is the establishment of the fleshly offspring of Abraham. Israel, the Jews, the great nation. We'll prove that, God willing, not ourselves, but the Bible. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And we will set it in proper context, not us, but the scriptures to show it's referring to the Abrahamic seed in Christ, 
and Jew and Gentile. So in the expositor, which is excellent, the notes all throughout the expositor are excellent from H.P. Mansfield. He speaks of the allegory of Abraham's life, where he talks about the subject matter that we're picking up here. Genesis 21, Ishmael, the natural seed cast out. Isaac, the sacrifice of the true seed, that's what happens in Genesis 22. God willing, next week, we'll take a look at that. Then the death of Sarah, Jerusalem in AD 70, and then the calling of a bride outside the land, the Gentiles. The gospel goes to the ecclesia to get a bride for Isaac, the sacrificial son. And then in chapter 25, Abraham takes more wives and concubines, and there are more children born. So now the kingdom is established, and the truth expands into all nations. And God willing, we'll have a look at that the next couple of weeks after this week. So let's just course through the record now, knowing exactly what it's stating, and look at it in a verse-by-verse -verse fashion. <clears throat> and again, it's not going to be difficult, and I mean to insult no one's intelligence. I think many of us already are very familiar with this. Um, and if not, it's just a great reassurance of the foundation of the truth that we understand, which pinnacle and its foundation certainly is the Abrahamic covenant. So Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said and did unto Sarah as he had spoken. Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son at the set time that God had spoken unto him. This is all according to the word of Yahweh. And that's how children are begotten of the Abrahamic seed. There is no natural sonship by fleshly right. And we read that over and over again in scripture. We are children begotten by the word. Of course, the epitome of that, it's really speaking of one seed primarily, that is Christ, and he was the word made flesh. He was the manna of the word come down from heaven. That we know. That is true sonship. Not just that you can look back in your genealogy and say, listen, we descended from Abraham, Therefore, we are the seed of Abraham spoken of in this context. Very deliberately, in history and in allegory, Abraham had two sons. Romans 9, and here's where the quote is taken up. Not as though the word of God has taken on effect. They are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they the children just because they're a fleshly offspring, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they that are the children of the flesh, they are not the children of God. And by the way, brothers and sisters, if you just, not that I have to tell anyone this, <clears throat> I certainly don't have to tell anyone this, of the flesh, you just take up that term. In the scriptures, of the flesh, it's never good. It's never good. It's never a compliment. So they're called the children of the flesh. And the flesh is never spoken of in a divine light as a positive thing. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed, those begotten by the word. For this is the word of promise at this time. Here's your quote from Genesis 21, verse 2 that we're considering. Will I come and Sarah shall have a son? So this is a son that is based upon the word of Yahweh. According to his set time, when Abraham and Sarah are old, and according to his spoken word of promise, flesh has nothing to do with this. So verses three and four, Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And the eighth day, by the way, is also the first day. We read that through the law of Moses in several occasions. It represents a newness of life because the eighth day is actually also the first day. It's a new creation. And so, again, the apostle by inspiration takes up this subject matter, and it's dealt with in detail in Romans chapter 4. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. 
So the promises were made to Abraham before he was actually circumcised. And he's making a point to the Jews who believe that if you were not circumcised, by the way, quote, according to the law of Moses, well, then you couldn't have been a seed of Abraham. But the promises were given to Abraham before, in historic chronology, before he was actually circumcised. Why? Why is that detail of history in there? Is it just a matter of circumstance? Well, the apostle says it's a matter of doctrine. So that he would be the father of all that believe, though they be not circumcised. There's a reason that the covenant of promise was given to Abraham, that he was after later in the history of time, circumcised. So that the promise that he would be the father of all them that would believe. So that the righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not only of circumcision, the Jews, but those who walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had yet being uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law. Remember what Hagar represented, Galatians 4. She represented the bondage out of Egypt under the law. But through the righteousness of faith. Here's what Brother Barling says in Long Grace. Far from establishing hereditary right, it did the very opposite. It stressed that their fleshly descent in no way qualified them for enjoyment of covenant privileges. It's teaching the principle. It really wasn't to be pride. It was to be humility. Why? Because flesh was cut off. And that's what Romans says. He that is really a Jew inwardly. And circumcision is that would inwardly. It's a circumcision of the heart, as the prophet said. Even Deuteronomy says that. So it was a physical act that was to point forward to a figurative significance. And it's the same thing in Philippians 3, in verse 3. We are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ, having no confidence in the flesh. And so... Brother Thomas, page 250, no uncircumcised person was permitted to be a member of Abraham's family. None but circumcised persons can inherit the promises. It may startle, but it's strictly true. It will, however, be remembered that true circumcision is of the heart. And he goes on to say circumcision of the flesh is but an outward sign of Abraham's circumcision of the heart. Everyone who would inherit the faithful with faithful Abraham must be circumcised likewise of heart. That is, in putting on Christ, and he, of course, quotes Colossians 2, and we're very familiar with that. That is a circumcision made without, heart, without hands, a circumcision of Christ. So it's a different principle of circumcision involved here. It in, relates to the seed of promise. On the eighth day, when flesh is cut off. And Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh so that all that hear will laugh and rejoice with me. And she said, who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck for I have borne him a son in his old age. And again, a principle. You've got barren wombs. You've got old age. You've got circumcision. You ultimately have in Mary a virgin bringing forth the seed after the spirit. That is a divine pattern throughout the scriptures. Everywhere. To teach us that Yahweh's mode of bringing forth children is never going to be by the flesh. So we pick up the context in Romans 4. Abraham, who is the father of us all, Note the quote here. It's that portion of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that is pertaining to all of us. As, as it is written, I've made thee a father of many nations. 
as ultimately his name is changed. Before him whom, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead. That's interesting language. And calls the things that be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might again become the father of many nations. This is Jew and Gentile, brothers and sisters. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. It's begotten by the word. It's a quickening from the dead. It's that which is born in old age. Something the flesh can't produce. And being not weak in faith, considered not his own body dead. When he was about a hundred years old, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. Two deaths. It's the death of the old man when you're dead in sins, producing life through the spoken word. That's how children are born. He staggered out of the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. As Brother Mansfield notes in his expositors, expositor series, that it was late in Israel's history when Messiah appeared. It was during his old age. The covenant is getting, given, Ishmael comes, and then much later down the time, at 100 years old, that's when Isaac, typical of Messiah, we'll see in just a moment, was born. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that he was weaned. So there's a change in diet from the milk to a solid substance of meat. And we know by actual, and I have Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, but it goes down into chapter 6, the first three verses, where you've moved away from the milk of the law to the strong meat in Christ. And I know we've referred to this, I just can't remember where, in one of our studies previously. Brother John Martin, in his studies on Hebrews, notes that this term that is referring to the oracles of God and the first principles is only ever used for the law. And the feast, the same representation is used for the keeping of the feast of Christ. Not with the old leaven, but with the new bread. And even it's spoken of in Jude as spots they are in your feast. Those that come in that really don't have the proper covering in Christ. So the feast is spoken of of Christ. It's a changing of the diet from the milk into the meat. And this is what we read in the very next verse. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, that was born unto Abraham mocking. There is a mocking at the changing of the principle from the milk to the meat. That's the Jewish mocking of the necessity of the Lord Jesus Christ to replace the law. When the first principles of the oracles of God have been moved out of the way and let us go on to a greater diet, he says in chapter six, verses one through three, let us go on past these and go into deeper meat of the word. And by the way, it's interesting this is mentioned, in the epistle to the Hebrews, the Jews, where the reference point is the law and how all aspects of Christ are greater than the law. Wherefore, she said unto Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, because they mocked the change of diet and the weaning of the son of promise. That's why she's cast out. The son of this bondwoman will not be heir with my son, Isaac. Will not. There's no heirship through the law. For if they which are of the law be heirs, says Romans 4.14, faith is made void, the promise is not effect. That's where we stand, brothers and sisters. What is the casting out? 
when the Roman centurion came to Christ, he said, I'm not worthy that thou should enter under my roof. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. And this man, who Luke says, loved our nation and built us a synagogue. Christ says, I found not so great faith not in Israel. Many will come from foreign lands, east and west, and sit down with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, we know that Israel constituted the kingdom of God, will be cast into outer darkness. I was scattered among the nations in AD 70. And again, Luke 13, you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God, you yourselves thrust out. Behold, they that are last, the Gentiles will be first, and those that are first will be last. Ishmael was before Isaac. Esau, Jacob, Adam, Christ. We know the pattern in scriptures, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> and by the way, let's save this for time's sake. I'll just mention that you get this pattern, and the expositor is very good on this subject matter, in Genesis 38 with the children of Tamar, where you're dealing with the children, Perez and Zerah where one comes forth first and a scarlet thread is tied upon his hand and he pulls back out of the womb. And then the second comes breaks forth. That's his name to break forth. And then the other one comes out second. The Abrahamic covenant was first. It was pushed aside by the mosaic and then it was confirmed in Christ. And there's the quote from the expositor, and I refer you to Genesis 38 of Brother Mansfield, how the sons of Tamar from Judah represent the Mosaic and the Abrahamic covenant. And he says that if you go through that chronologically with the notes of Brother Mansfield, it, and by the way, Jim Cowie has notes on this that are excellent as well, did a series of studies here in Texas on this matter, and I can send those uh, as well. While Hagar represents Jerusalem under the law and Sarah, Jerusalem under the new constitution of the Hebrew commonwealth, Ishmael represents Israel glorying in their fleshly descent from Abraham. This is why this is important, brothers and sisters, because you will remember after 9-11 and the focus of the world were the Arab nations, the brotherhood, some corners of it, got very wobbly on the seed of Ishmael and what its representation was. And we started getting into the Arab theory. It's Ishmael representing Israel glorying in their fleshly descent from Abraham, boasting in the law, and Isaac, those of Israel and the Gentiles who regard the flesh as profiting nothing. They're the sons of Abraham by believing the promises made to him in a seed. Hence, Ishmael and Isaac represent the two seeds or classes of mankind who shall not be heirs together of the promise. This is why the allegory as an emphasis of doctrine is so important, brothers and sisters. It helps us keep on the straight path of what the truth is all about. Hence, Ishmael and Isaac represent two seeds or classes of mankind who shall not be heirs together of the promise. And we'll have more to say about that. For the kingdom to be established is a righteous dominion and requires righteous men for its administration. It is impossible, therefore, that the Ishmaelite seed can be heirs of the promise. It's Elpis Israel. Now, obviously, we're quoting Elpis Israel, according to my volume, by the way, pages 250 to 254. As I said, this is a very, very good section. Uh, the seed of Abraham, I believe is what it's called. Someone else might have it. I should know that. <laughs> Here I'm quoting from it. I should know it. Someone else may know that. Remember the first parable spoken of the Lord. Ye are the salt of the earth, speaking to the Jews, but if the salt lost its savor, it's only to be cast out. It's neither good for the land nor the dunghill, says the Luke corresponding account, 
but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of mud, Jerusalem in AD 70. It's the salt of the covenant was lacking. And of course, they looked at it as a matter of birthright, and that is not accurate. The children of the flesh persecuting the children of promise. Paul himself says that. If anyone would have confidence in the flesh, it would be me. If anyone was going to trust in the flesh, it would be me. I'm circumcised the eighth day, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee concerning zeal. I persecuted the ecclesia. There is the persecuting of the fleshly seed against the seed of Isaac and his brothers. Christ warned that the kingdom of God would be taken from the natural Jews and given to a people revealing the fruits thereof, which Peter identifies as the, as the ecclesia. By the way, I've just been saying this with our brethren in our local area. On our midweek Bible class, we're dealing with events subsequent to the return of Christ. This is becoming clearer and clearer in my mind. Notice this statement. The old covenant was brought to an end by the sacrifice of Christ, and the people who clung to it were expelled from the land, the daily sacrifice. And Abraham was shown this in type. They were literally removed from the place of worship, so the mosaic ceased, so that the priesthood, the new covenant, the offerings now the king of the kingdom had to be transferred to Christ. They were physically removed from the land for that purpose. And of course, Thessalonians, they forbid us to speak to the Gentiles. They might be saved to fill up their sin always. For the wrath has come upon them to the utmost. And God said unto Abraham, in all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. So here's Abraham representing the covenant. That as a bondwoman, by the way, that Sarah gave to him, not Abraham, Sarah gave to him, saying to Abraham what to do. Hearken under her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now to Abraham and to a seed where the promises made, this is very important. This is very, very important. He's not speaking of seeds in a plurality, as of many, yes, ultimately, but as of one and to thy seed, which was Christ. We know that Galatians 3 goes on in the quote. I'll state that in just a minute. Here's Brother Thomas and Elpis Israel. In Isaac, singular, shall thy seed be called. That is, Christ would descend from him, and all who believe the promises and put on Christ shall be considered in Isaac. You're baptized in Christ. Thus, being the children of promise, shall be counted for the seed who shall inherit the land of the world forever. Thy seed then is a phrase that must be understood in a twofold sense. First, its primary application is referring to Christ. And then secondly, all who are constitutionally in him. And that's what Galatians 3, after verse 16, goes down to reference in verses 26 through 29. Whether Jew or Gentile, any that's baptized into Christ is Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When just earlier in the chapter, he determined that the seed was actually Christ. But any that is baptized in, I, in Isaac is a phrase that just doesn't mean Oh, and Isaac shall my seed be called. It means constitutionally a seed singular and all those that are baptized in Isaac. Even as Isaac was, brethren, so are we the children of promise, says Paul in Romans. So here's Hagar, the Egyptian bondwoman. Literally, the children of Israel were servants under bondage, which the serpent was literally the representation of Pharaoh. Brother Matt Benger have a very good exhortation on our daily reading last Sunday on this. They were literally servants of sin, servants of Pharaoh. They were scripturally termed 
like Hagar, the Egyptian bondwoman, as being under bondage to the law of Moses, and they were in bondage in Egypt. It was a system that manifested sin and therefore the law of sin and death. It is this Mosaic covenant from Sinai, says Paul, by inspiration, that genders bondage. Remember, Paul says, actually, that covenant, that commandment, that Mosaic that I actually thought was a law to life, I found to be unto death. By the way, if we need any surety of that, this just struck me in this study. It's almost embarrassing. This just struck me. What does it say of the Sadducees who stuck to the law? They believed in neither the resurrection of the dead nor angels or eternal life. It tells you of their systematic sticking to the law that they didn't believe that it could give life. The bondage which was under the law could not redeem and therefore could not give life. So we read in Romans 13, the promise that Abraham would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void. Ye are dead in your sins, is how Paul uses that in 1 Corinthians 15. And the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. It manifests sin and transgression and therefore death, brothers and sisters. The Mosaic could not disannul the Abrahamic. That which came 400 plus years afterwards could not disannul that it should make the Abrahamic covenant of none effect. And also the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation. Now we're to that point of the quotation, brothers and sisters, that is referring to the Abrahamic covenant as we referred in Genesis chapter 12. The all families of the earth is referring to Jew and Gentile. The making of this great nation is now referring to the son of the bondwoman. And so Brother Thomas says in Alphys Israel, page 254, it doesn't follow that nothing more is to be done with the children of the flesh, like they're forever to be cast out. To carry out the allegory, notice what he says there. Not that it's my opinion. Based on the prophets, what the scriptures say, he said, I'm just following the consistency of the allegory. God has yet to make Ishmael's seed a great nation. For though Ishmael was an outcast and a wanderer in the wilderness, you'll remember what Hosea 9 verse 17, wow, I should have that on the screen. They wandered among the nations. Yeah, I believe that's Hosea 9 17. Now I'm saying that more confidently. Okay, I think it's Hosea 9 verse 17. Israel being cast out is a wanderer among the nations. Um, wandered among the wilderness, God promised that he should be great and dwell in his presence. The Ishmael children were cast out by the government of the Romans, but the children of Isaac will shine forth as the son in the kingdom of their father when the kingdom is restored again to Israel. So it's not as if they're forever cast out. So here we have it, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> Rightly understanding the Ishmael seed, Abraham rose up in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water, and he gave it to Hagar. So he facilitates a temporary means of sustenance. Putting it on her shoulder, it's a burden, and so the law is called. And he sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness. Now, you will know as well as I do, that is a phrase used for Israel under the law when they came out of Egypt. And they wandered in the wilderness 40 years. It's used not just one time, brothers and sisters. But then it says, she's in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, if you're still there in Genesis chapter 21, look what it says in verse 31. It says that it was called Beersheba because of the oath. 
the swearing of the covenant of Abraham. So it is an oath that is connected to Abraham. And she's wandering in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the record tells us, as Brother Terry read for us, she can't see it. Her eyes have to be open. She's in the midst of the well of the oath by Abraham. That's the name of it. Check the margin of your Bible. Check Strong's. Check any concordance. It's the well of the oath. But she only has temporary water on her shoulder. And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. He was only a schoolmaster until the appearing of Christ to fulfill it. Galatians 3. It was then taken out of the way or done away and fulfilled. That's what it really means, is to fulfill it. Christ was the end of the law for righteousness. Why was the law given? It was added because of transgressions. Why? Paul tells us. We're back in Galatians 3. We're sticking with Romans 4, Genesis chapter 21, Galatians chapter 4, and Galatians 3. We're not moving all over the scriptures. We're dealing with four primary chapters of the Bible. We're not avoiding the subject. We're going in a systematic verse-by-verse fashion. It was added until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Christ. There was a form of truth in the law. There was a form of it. It was fulfilled in the spirit of it by Christ. He is the seed of promise. And Hagar went and sat down over against him a good way off. Very unique language here, brothers and sisters. As it were a bow shot and said, let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lifted up her voice and wept. There's two aspects to this, the death of the child. It is called the law of sin and death, the law of Moses. The strength of sin and death is the law. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. It was a system that manifested death. Paul says that. Couldn't produce life. It was temporary. The water was spent, the burden on her shoulder. She had no more to give. And the seed to whom the promises have been made, Isaac had already been born, but they mocked it. They mocked it. And secondly, it prophetically represents the wandering among the nations. As we said, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the time of Jacob's trouble, nearing a national death, Hosea 9, verse 17, that should be there as well. In this time of great mourning, which is compared to as what? This national mourning, when all the nations come upon Jerusalem to destroy it, what is the metaphor that we're given prophetically? We're given the metaphor, they will mourn as one that mourns for his only son, and they will be in bitterness for him. That's Hagar. And she's mourning and lifts up her voice, weeping, because she didn't want to see the death of the child. That's the symbolic prophetic metaphor that we're given. In Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. And that's what Brother Thomas says. Concentrate on the context in which the symbol is given. And it unlocks a key to all the various metaphors of the Bible. There is no ability for the law to save. It couldn't. And God heard the voice of the lad. The lad. 
the lad. He was a tutor. He was a schoolmaster. He was a child under instruction. Galatians 3 and 4. To bring us to a maturity of the law. I'm sorry. The law was to bring us to a maturity to Christ. And the angel, the law was given by angels, called unto Hagar out of heaven and said, What aileth thee? Fear not. God has heard the voice of the lad. It's Ishmael. It's the seed to become a great nation. He will save them from afar. They'll be at the time of political death, and the angels are overseeing both Israel and the nations. He will not leave them altogether unpunished, but he will save them. He will not make a full end of them. He will not make a full end of them. Even though they've been cast out and the bottle has been spent and they've been thrown under the shrubs. Arise, lift up the lad, lad and notice the quote. It's directly from Genesis 12. For I will make him a great nation. In the regeneration when the Son of Man, Elpis Israel, now page 255, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, and the children of Isaac will reign as sons, while the children of the flesh will be the king's subjects or servants. Remember that, brothers and sisters. Remember that. This is not the first time that Hagar is cast out. The first time that she is cast out is Genesis 16, which she is told to return to her mistress, Sarah, and to submit to her, to be a servant to her, to be subservient to her rule. If the natural Israel are not restored to Canaan, the spiritual Israel would inherit a kingdom without subjects to serve them. She returns to the house in servitude. In the terms of the allegory, the promises relate to Israel according to the flesh. Israel is to become a great, I'm sorry, to become great in the kingdom of God. You know that from all those prophetic quotes there. That's Brother H.P. Mansfield, the expositor. And God opened her eyes and she saw the well. She's wandering in the presence of the well. She just needs her eyes open. And when she does, she fills the bottle of water and gives it to the lad. Now, we've already said this represents the law. What did Christ do? When it says he opened their eyes and he testified of all the law and the prophets concerning himself, their hearts were on fire. What was the reference point for opening their eyes? It was the bottle of water. The law doesn't refute Christ. Do we make void the law? No. We establish it. It was a shadow and a type and an allegory pointing forward to Christ. It didn't negate it. It established it, brothers and sisters. Israel is just in blindness. And that's what Romans 11 says. Before it talks about the quotation we all know, verse 25, blindness has happened to Israel to the fullness of the Gentiles come in. It says back in verse 7, Israel has not obtained that which they sought for because they were blinded. A spirit of slumber was given them, eyes that they would not see. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that when the law is read, there's blindness upon them. They can't see it. And a well, and all those references you can look up in your spare time, speak of salvation. A well is one that brings forth life. And all those references, as you well know them, will establish that. Abrahamic covenant was the fulfilling of the law and the prophets. 
He came, says Romans 15, God willing, we'll get into this next week, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Romans 15, verse 8. He confirmed the Abrahamic covenant. He fulfilled the law. That's what Christ came to do. And God was with the lad, Israel under the law, and he grew. So now, having seen and the eyes are open and filling the law with the Abrahamic well, understanding the purpose of law and the fulfilling of Christ of that, there's a growth moving from the milk unto the meat. And he becomes a great archer and he dwells in the wilderness of Paran. And I refer you to the notes in the Exposer by H.V. Mansfield, where he talks about the section of Paran. And you will know prophetically how it is dealt with in scriptures and why the archer is used. Because I bent Judah for me and I filled the bow with Ephraim, I have made him a great nation. That's what was just spoken in the previous verses. And now becoming a great nation, he grows from a lad and becomes a mighty archer. And what happens? He gets a wife from the land of Egypt. What will the fullness and the restoration of the Jews be? We know that God has not cast off his people permanently. That's all the subject of Romans chapter 11. If the casting out of them be the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? And the scriptures say that the restoration of those people will be the conversion and the enlightenment of the Egyptians, the Gentiles. All the heathen will look on that nation and say, were these not the people, etc.? This took place in Beersheba, as we said, verse 31 tells us, it is a place where they swear by an oath. And the birth of Christ was to confirm the oath which God swore unto our fathers Abraham. That's what we're told in Luke chapter 1, verse 73. And again, this is the second time that Hagar is cast out. So when we look to John chapter 8, which... John chapter 9 immediately is on the heels of this. Christ passing through their midst saw a blind man. Brother Colin Hollandy opened my eyes to this years ago. This is a debate about the Abrahamic seed. It's phenomenal. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then ye are disciples. Jews that believed on him. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered and said, we be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. What do you mean we'll be made free? Abraham's seed, bondage, Christ would make them free. Jesus answered and said, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committed sin is under the law, is a servant of sin, Hagar and her son. The servant, servant, not son, servant, abideth not. Hagar was a bondwoman. The servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. He is clearly speaking of Hagar, the Egyptian bondwoman, and her seed under the law and the Jews, Israel after the flesh. 
and Isaac and the son of the servant who abides in the house forever to make us free from the law of sin and death. I know that you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me. And Sarah saw Agar's son, which Abraham bare unto him, mocking. You seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. The temporary bottle of water upon the shoulder. Jesus saith unto him, there is the fulfiller of the law and prophets. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. You are of your father, the flesh, the lust of your father will you do. And so, brothers and sisters, this is what John said when they came to be baptized. Think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Yes, probably the stones that Joshua had put in the place in Jordan. When the children of Israel, not under Moses, but under Joshua, entered the land, He's baptizing in Jordan, same place where they crossed. So the chronology of the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants is this. Abrahamic covenant promise of the seed. He is not circumcised. Sarah is barren. She gives Hagar to Abraham, brings forth the son. Pharaoh's Zerah. First. Pulls back, a breach is made, and the other one comes forth first. The Mosaic Covenant, by the way, in Hebrews, Jim Cowley has this in his notes, is called the first covenant. Hagar bears a seed of bondage, and then Sarah, the seed of promise, who is initially with Abraham, comes forth, that is Isaac. And so we read, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not unto seed, as in many, but one that is Christ. And this I say, that covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ with Sarah, the law, which was 430 years after, Hagar, Ishmael, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto faith, which should afterwards be revealed. So when Paul goes through this doctrine, brothers and sisters, at length, and you know he's dealing with this from the very beginning, in Galatians chapter 1, why did you fall so quickly from the gospel? And you've returned back to the Judaism. To solidify that doctrine, in Galatians chapter 1, all the way through Galatians chapter 4, verse 20, he calls upon history to teach the doctrine that he's spoken of. In Galatians chapter 1, through chapter 4, verse 20, and he says, let's prove it by the allegory of history. And so, brothers and sisters, when we talk about types and shadows and parables and allegories, it is not some academic exercise that is just supposed to be intellectual. It is something that Yahweh gives us to look to history as also doctrinal prophecy. And so, brothers and sisters, this is our first class dealing with the allegory of Abraham's life. And God willing, next week, in the perfect chronology of God, we deal with Genesis chapter 22, where a father offers up his son. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.